0: Morning, Grace Fullerton. Morning. I can't tell you what a pleasure it is to be here finally. This is my first Sunday, not just preaching, uh, but actually visiting here. And it's not from lack of intention to do so, but you know, life gets busy, and you have commitments at, at La Mirada. Um But it is sweet to be here. What a great place this is! It's just been a pleasure to see people that are familiar, old friendships, and. Uh, that I haven't seen in a while, and um, greetings from La Mirada. Um, This is a great series that we're in for, and uh, I'm excited to uh, be invited to to preach this lead-off introduction. Um, And and I understand that uh, you were blessed last week by uh, Timothy Pinkham's uh, recitation of the book, End to End, yeah? (laughs) Um, What a blessing that was, I'm sure, for you and for us um, I love that we are in a church that will sit and listen to God's Word at length from, from one bookend to the, to, to the, to the, uh, to the last uh, and hear the full counsel of God and really let it sink in and, and fall on our hearts because it's so important when we study God's Word not to take things out of context. We want to hear things repeated. We want to hear uh, recurring ideas. We want to understand the context. Um, so, this is an exciting time for me. Um, just real quick, I-, I wasn't here last Sunday with you guys, but when you guys were listening to that recitation and you were just kind of having it wash over you, we're going to be in 1 Peter this morning, and, and maybe let's turn there now, uh, maybe refresh our minds. But what were some, uh, let's, let's just warm things up a little bit here. I'm a classroom teacher. I think that was mentioned before. So I'm, I'm, this is cool. This is like second period for me. It was about that time. So. Uh, <laughs> Uh, what, what were some some words, some phrases that really stood out? And maybe I don't know if you guys had a time to, to just speak those out last week, as, as like we did at La Merata. Just a, a time to, to 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 say some of those things. What what were some of those ideas that really landed? Yeah. Kept by the power. Of God. Kept by the power of God. Amen. Just like that song we just sang, he will hold me fast. That is, that is, we've got to start there, don't we? What else? Being sober-minded. Being sober-minded. If, um, you know, people suffer for different reasons, but if Christ is a reason we suffer, then it's not something to be ashamed about. Right? Really Good. Yeah. So we, we will suffer, but we don't need to be ashamed, right, to be called Christians. What else? Being good, good conduct, be. and being
1: obviously transformed yeah, by the gospel. Yeah. Be
0: holiness, be holy. yeah. Good works spoken of so many times throughout Peter. You know, we had that discussion, and, and that was a, a, a rich observation just how many times Peter talks about good deeds. Yeah. Being chosen. Being chosen. Being chosen. Oh no. die to sin and live to righteousness. Dying to sin, living to righteousness, right? And that's, and that's how, part of how we follow in the footsteps of Christ, is we, we, we follow him in the way of the cross, count ourselves dead to sin, yeah. Holiness. Holiness, yes. Be holy, for <coughs> I am holy. Wow. How do we, how do, we do that? we do precious. Hmm. Yes. That word precious. precious, yeah. The blood of Christ is precious. And our faith is precious. More precious than gold. Any material thing is our faith. Yeah. A song we, we, we sang earlier talked about uh, anxiety, right? And uh, that was a word I heard a lot at, at uh, the La Mirada campus. You know, casting. All of our cares on Him, for He cares for us. And uh, these are some great, great ideas. If you were, if you were sitting there like like I was at La Merata two weeks ago, you may be thinking to yourself, "Wow, what a great book! There's so much practical theology here. There is so much practical theology. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna look at things like how do I." How do I know, how can I trust uh, this message that the Bible is God's word that has come down to me? Uh, how do I grow in my faith? How do I share my faith? How do I give an answer okay, for the, uh, and, and give a reason for the hope that's within me? How do I remain faithful in my marriage? Maybe even if I'm in a marriage that is unequal in faith, where my spouse isn't yet a believer? How do I remain holy uh, in a world that is increasingly hostile? How do I stand against temptation and the devil? A lot of those how-to questions might have been in our minds. But this morning, I want us to look at the framework for all of those questions. And that's why we're having uh, a look at what we might call the bookends, right? The introduction, the conclusion, the parts in the letter that often get skimmed over, right? Let's get to the meat, right? Let's get to the practical. Let's get to how does this bless my heart and and apply to my life, right? But we need to start with this framework, this amazing theological framework that Peter gives us. And really, Paul follows the same pattern. Because before we can start with the to-do list, we need to understand what God has already done for us. And that's what I want to encourage my heart with and your heart with this morning. So let's go ahead and read our passages. Let's read these bookends. We're going to be at the first two verses and then the last, uh, the last three. So, and and if we could, could we stand as we read God's word and hear it? And as we stand, I know you, you you probably couldn't have done this last week with the whole book end to end. But I want you to put yourself in mind of the early church this early church on the outskirts in Asia Minor getting one of these letters from Peter and they would have stood and heard this letter read end to end and it's to us. We still have this word. God has preserved his word and he is giving it to us. Let's read together. And I'm going to read from the ESV because apparently that's what we're supposed to do at great. It's it's kind of the unofficial... (laughs) Translation. I, I, I am resisting a little. I love the NIV, but and you'll hear me going back and forth. But 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 I'll read it in the ESV. Okay. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And then skipping to the end, verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, We praise you. We give you glory for preserving your word over 2,000 years. And Lord, we are just humbled by this amazing grace we stand in, this tradition of faith. Encourage our hearts through your word, through this simple letter from a simple man who is empowered by your spirit. Lord, encourage our hearts this morning so that we might stand fast in the grace of Christ. In his name we ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning, uh, I I just want to, again, provide the the framework. We're going to look at the bookends. And uh, I just want to start off with some brief introductory remarks about the author and, the, and, and the, the, the audience, the purpose of the letter so we get it in its historical context. And then I want, just want to walk us through five big ideas, five big ideas from the bookends uh, that, that, I don't know, I think they just leap off the page uh, at, right, right at us and, so that we can be encouraged uh, in our faith as we continue studying through this book. Peter, Peter, an apostle, a sent one. Peter, whose, whose name means rock, right? And, and Jesus gave him that nickname to Simon, rock. A little pebble is actually, you know, Rocky is what we might call him today. I had a, uh, growing up, I, I had a neighbor named Rocky, and it fit. Uh, just, you know, this kind of rough and tumble guy, uh, unassuming, uh, and, and perhaps a, a, little, a little rough around the edges, but, but love the Lord. Um, that's Peter, this fisherman. I love that we are studying Peter following our series in Mark, because if you were to study the Gospels like Mark and Matthew and take out this Jesus guy, you would come to the conclusion that these Gospels are about Peter. He, he, he looms so large, Right? And I think a lot of us identify with Peter. If you're like me, I identify with Peter because, man, he blows it, doesn't he? And, and, and he is such a flawed vessel. He's a man of extremes, right? He has flashes of brilliance. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. He gives the right Sunday school answer, and the next moment he's being rebuked by being an agent of Satan. Satan. He's the one who says, no, no, you can't, no, don't wash my feet. That's not for a rabbi to do. And then the next moment he does a 180 and says, give me a sponge bath all over. He's the one who bragged to his master, I won't ever forsake you. I will go with you to death. And then even pulls out his sword and cuts a man's ear off just to show how serious he was. And yet he still denies his Lord three times, just this very same evening. But of course, that's not the end of the story for this Peter. And I'm sure we are always encouraged by what John's gospel has to say in chapter 21, the restoration of Peter, where Jesus pulls him aside on the seashore there and says, Peter, do you love me? and he asks him three times and peter is like why are you asking me three times he might have asked him three times for each of the three times that he was you know denied we're not sure but remember what jesus told him feed my sheep tend my lambs he's turning over the role of shepherding to this peter and that's the man who's writing us this epistle He's been charged by his master to feed God's people, and he is still feeding us. Mm -hmm. He's still feeding God's people. There's another uh, precious passage uh, that, that I often have to be reminded of, and it's in Luke's gospel. I usually remember, oh yeah, he was reinstated after the fact. But but if you go back to Luke's gospel, if you want to turn there real quick, you can, or just jot down the reference. This is Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32. Because we always remember Jesus predicted Peter's failure, right? He predicted this would happen. Against Peter's pride and, and braggadocio, he predicted that he would fall. But he also predicted something else, and I want us to to just absorb this, because it always, it just encourages me so much. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. See, Christ knew not only that Peter would fail, but he also secured Peter's success. He was even then interceding for Peter. And he gave him the charge then as he gave him after his restoration, strengthen your brothers, feed the sheep, feed the people of God. And this is the man writing this wonderful letter to us who has been cleansed, who's been forgiven, who met, walked with, and then met again the risen Lord This audience, who's he writing to? Well, a lot of places we've never heard of, right? Bithynia, uh, Pontus, Galatia. Um, I, do, I did bring a you know, the, introduct- or the the obligatory uh, map, okay, so maybe we can have that slide here. It's just you know you always have to put the map up in case you don't have one of those Bibles with maps at the back, or if your, your Bible's like mine, they 've fallen out. <laughs> So this, this was the best picture I could get that had all of them together. And what's interesting, so you can kind of see them over, he, over here to the, to the right of the screen. What's interesting to me about this picture is what's not on the map, what's not showing here. Uh, if you go down uh, south, just, just below Syria, you've got to head south a, a, a ways to get to Israel and Jerusalem, which would be the Jewish religious center. And you can just barely see it, but on the left-hand side, you can see the corner of the boot of Italy there. And then further west is Rome. Rome, the capital of the world, this empire. And here Peter's writing to this church off to the side, these churches off to the side, this encyclical letter. An encyclical would have been a letter uh, that would go to all of these places and very possibly the the order in which they were listed would be the order to which they would be uh, delivered and read. And here they are on the outskirts, dispersed, exiled. And he's writing this letter to encourage them, even though they're off to the side here, even though they're not uh, at, at the religious center in, in, in Jerusalem, they're, they're, they're not exactly near, the, quite at the center of the empire, Rome, but they're they're still part of this movement, this Christianity. So, what's Peter's purpose? This letter was probably written around 63, 64 AD when uh, we're starting to see the persecution of the church. The emperor Nero was in power. And as we know, Nero began to prosecute a great persecution of Christians a little bit later that that would eventually claim Peter's life. And Peter is writing from Rome and he's seeing the writing on the wall, as it were. And maybe they're starting to encounter this kind of opposition. A world's becoming increasingly hostile towards them. At first, uh, maybe they were just, uh, "Oh, aren't they cute? This is an interesting, puzzling little sect of, of of Jews." Okay, they've got some odd beliefs about this Messiah. They eat his body. They're cannibals. What what what's going on with these people? But more and more, these. Christians, these people of the way, are being seen as a threat to the stability of this great empire, this, this empire that promises law and justice and a, and a civic religion and control. And Christianity seems to be a little bit of a threat to that. And uh, We might need to uh, put our foot down. So Peter is writing to these folks to encourage, to encourage these elect exiles to stand firm in the true grace of Christ, to stand firm in a world that's becoming increasingly hostile towards Christianity. And I just love one other thing that that, that goes on later on. I, I don't want to steal anybody's thunder, but just thinking about Peter. You think Peter, right? He's in Rome. He walked with Jesus. He was, he was part of Jesus' inner circle. And he's writing to us. And later on in verse or chapter, uh, chapter 1, he says, Though you have not seen him, that is this Jesus, you love him. You haven't seen him. You've n- I know you've never met him. But I knew him. I walked with him. And you love him. You love him just like I do. And you can stand firm in the grace that he brings just as much as I can. And this Peter calls himself a fellow elder. Not a, dare I say it, pope. Right? Jesus said, call, call no man father. You have one father. This is, this is the man, this is the audience, and this is the situation. Already, perhaps we can see the parallels to our own situation here in the West. So I do want to go through just what I would take to be five big ideas from the bookends that will encourage us to stand firm in the grace of Christ. Now, as I was reading through this epistle, so I was looking at these verses, looking uh, at, at words and ideas that kept recurring, I couldn't ignore the fact that there's a, a recurring word, a recurring idea. And some of you might have already noticed that word because it's the it's the first word in the sermon title, and 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 you might already have your guard up. It's it's that one e word, elect. Oh no here we go. We're going to talk about election. <laughs> now, if you're like me, maybe it, maybe you're t- you, you've, you've gone through this question over and over and over. I went to Biola, I went to Talbot, and I spent uh, probably far more time than I needed to Arguing, debating with people about election and predestination and foreknowledge and how all that works. And I know for a fact that I did it often in a way that was not befitting a disciple of Jesus Christ. So rather than get into that, I'd rather show you a a slide on some popular culture to distract you. So go ahead, put that up. (laughs) We got these pictures. Okay, I don't know if you can see these pictures very well. Uh, What do all of these pictures have in common? I'm hearing it. Go ahead. What are they? They're all. They've all been called at one time or another the chosen one. Each in their own little situ, whatever their situation, uh, fictitious or real, they have been dubbed the chosen one. Okay. Now, laying aside the fact that, obviously, these are very poor imitations of, of any messianic concept of a chosen one, right? That's not where I want to take this sermon today, but I was reflecting on this idea of being chosen because that's a recurring phrase, isn't it? Not just in the bookends, but throughout the book, we have Christ being chosen as a precious cornerstone and, and Peter reiterating, you have been chosen. What is it that all these stories, this this trope of a chosen one, what do they all have in common? In all of these stories, there comes a point, a pivotal point, and the entire fate of humanity, of Lego Town, or the NBA Finals, hinges on this Whether this thing will happen or not, and what is the one thing that needs to happen? It's simply this, that the chosen one will realize that he or she is chosen. That's it. It's an epiphany, right? And it's that epiphany that turns this chosen one who up until this point had no clue that they were chosen, maybe even actively resisted being the chosen one, and turns that person into someone who becomes the hero. Now, all I think that this illustrates to us is this truth, is that what we believe has an impact into what we do, and our concept of who we are is part of what informs the way we live. And it informs our courage. It it informs our boldness. And so, I am going to walk into this. I am going to talk about being chosen, and that's going to be the recurring phrase, but here's all I want to say about that. The pattern that we see in Peter, the pattern that we see in Paul, and even the pattern I think we see in Jesus. Every time... Election is talked about or being chosen. Doesn't matter what side you're on, whether you were raised Wesleyan or Calvinist or Presbyterian or Arminian, whatever you, whatever you are or, or, or anywhere in between, I think we can all agree on this. Anytime that this is mentioned in Scripture, it is always for our encouragement. It is always for our encouragement. And we need to accept God's word as it was intended This is intended for our encouragement and whatever it means. And we might not with our human minds be able to plumb the depths of God's mind and get it all figured out and worked out into a a, a perfect uh, airtight theology where all the exits are covered. We might not be able to do that, but we can be encouraged. We can be encouraged by it because that's what God's word wants to do. That's what God wants to do through his word. So, here are the big ideas. Here they come. Big idea number one, we were chosen by God through the Holy Spirit to be set apart. That is, sanctified in the world. We were chosen to be set apart and sanctified. He talks about us being elect exiles, strangers in the world. and he's writing of course from Babylon. Now Babylon of course is code. Peter's using Babylon as a substitute for Rome. Why? <laughs> because his audience which is probably has a good amount of uh, a Jewish population and they are dispersed Jews, probably some, a lot of Gentiles there as well. But notice how much Old Testament language is in this book. And so Babylon would activate that, that memory, right, of exile, Babylon, oh yeah, 70 years in this godless pagan empire under Nebuchadnezzar and, and, and so on. What does this have to say for us? Are we in exile? Are we strangers in this world? Of course we are. And yet we are set apart. We're called to be holy in the midst of this world. I was uh, reading a blog by an Australian pastor by the name of Stephen McAlpin, and he's been talking recently about this idea of exile, and he believes that the church has been going through a period of exile now for a few decades. And he believes that we have entered a stage of exile that is different from the stage we have been in previously, and we might not realize it. He says, at first we were in exile in an Athenian kind of sense. We were exiles in Athens. What does he mean by that? Uh, Think of Acts uh, 17. Paul goes to the Areopagus to debate with the the Greek philosophers because they're very welcoming and tolerant of divergent opinions. They liked hearing these new ideas, right? And so they willingly listened to him talk about Christ and the resurrection. And so what McAlpin is saying is for, for, for years, we've been assuming that we're living in an Athens. And in many respects, we are. Where we feel like, wow, all we need to do as a church, all we need to do in our apologetics is is prove to the world that we deserve a seat at the intellectual table. With the presupposition being that this world is neutral, intellectually. But what McAlpin then goes on to say is, we are not in Athens, really. Our exile is more like being in Babylon. So what's the difference? What's the practical difference? He says this, unlike Athens, Babylon is not interested in trying to outthink us, merely overpower us. And therefore, mere apologetic method and new ways of doing church don't cut it in Babylon Only courage under fire. Notice how many times Peter talks about fear. Stand firm. Do not give way to fear. We need to be encouraged in this. And I don't know about you, but think about where you are in your neighborhood, in your family, your your place of work, school. You might feel start to feel this kind of intolerance. Something more along the lines of an overpowering force trying to force you into its mold, a world trying to force you into its mold and not even giving you a hearing, rather silencing you. And what McAlpin says is we need people more like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego Who will look the king straight in his enraged face and say, We will not bow down to your idol, even if we're the last three men standing, because we serve the living God. Big idea number two we were chosen by God so that we could obey Christ. Christ is our master, Christ is our Lord. Uh, we just we just mentioned a little while ago how often Peter mentions good works, doing good, even to win people without a word. Now, this verse, this part of the verse, struck me a little, a little oddly at first. I, I I had to react a little bit because. Coming as a, as, a, as a Christian, as kind of a, you know, uh, someone who believes in grace, new covenant, and having so many try harder sermons preached at me, I'm thinking, wait, wasn't the whole purpose of the Old Testament, wasn't the whole point to prove to us that we can't obey, right? Was, wasn't that the whole point? And Peter, right off the bat, is saying, for obedience, Obey, right? It's got me a little bit unsettled. But remember, our God is still a commandment-given God. He is still a holy God. And we are to be holy as he is holy. And Peter does talk at length about obeying, doing good works, following in the footsteps of Christ, becoming more and more like him. He even says things that are really uncomfortable, like slaves submitting to masters. So what do we do with this? So far, this sounds like a tall order. So far, I'm kind of discouraged. I'm living in Babylon, and I'm being told to obey. I can't do that. And if you're like me, you just... Feel overwhelmed and probably scared. But there's good news. Peter doesn't end it there, does he? Big idea number three. We were chosen by God so that we could be covered by his blood. Peter says, for sprinkling, for sprinkling. Now, why that word sprinkling? Again, an audience that had Jewish uh, background and, and understanding of the Old Testament, think back to the book of Leviticus. Think back to the law. What role did sprinkling of blood have? Well, they did it all the time. The priests had to sprinkle blood on everything. Why? To cleanse it. Now, again, this sounds backwards, doesn't it? Especially if you're a parent like I am, where you've had to clean, sprinkled blood <laughs> off of things <laughs> as as it was issuing forth from some wound on your child. And you think this is not a picture of cleanliness. And yet They were told to sprinkle the blood on everything, the altar, all of the instruments, all of the things used in the worship of God had to be sprinkled by blood. Why? Because even those things that God had commanded that they make to just precise specifications in keeping with his perfect holiness, even those things had been made by hands tainted by sin and they needed that covering. I was, I was thinking about this as we were singing and, and worshiping, thinking, praise the Lord, we don't have to sprinkle these guitars with blood anymore. <laughs> or the keyboard. What a mess, right? But the sprinkling wasn't just for cleansing. The, the, the sprinkling, or, or, it was also for consecration. If you go to uh, Leviticus chapter 8 near the end around verse 30, You see that Aaron the priest, the high priest himself, and his sons all had to be sprinkled with this blood. And that's the image that Peter uses for sprinkling. You were chosen for sprinkling. You have been cleansed. You have been made right for service. It's not just he's wiped your slate clean. He has imputed his righteousness to you. And he has set you apart to minister. That's why we can all sing together as a body. That's why God will accept our songs and our recitation of his word and our prayers. It's all because of this sprinkled blood of Christ. We need to look at what Christ has done for us to make sense of the things that God then asks us to do. And notice we are sprinkled by Christ's blood first. But this blood then consecrates us. That's how we can then follow number two. That's why we obey. See, other religions, other faiths, they put it this way. You were chosen for your salvation. You were chosen by God for salvation because of your obedience. The gospel says you were chosen for salvation so that you could obey. We've got to get this order right. We've got to get this order right. And, we, and it's, it's not an either-or, it's a both-and, but we start with the sprinkled blood of Christ. We, we start with the shed blood of Christ, okay? This faith is, is a gift of God. It is not of works, lest anyone should boast. But then verse 10 of Ephesians 2, right, talks about the good works that we were chosen for, that we were foreordained to do. We were chosen to do good works, we have been we are instruments in the redeemer's hands big idea number 4 we were chosen by god so that we could receive grace and peace in abundance this might seem like for me i have to confess this, this sounded at first like a kind of an anticlimactic statement at the beginning of this salutation right He winds through all of this stuff and then boom, colon, grace and peace and abundance. That's what he was ramping up to. What an impious thought. What a theologically unreflective thought. Alistair Begg puts it this way. If you have grace and peace, you have everything you need. And we have it in abundance. To overflowing, multiplied, as some translations put it. Grace and peace in abundance. The blood of Christ was sprinkled, was shed, and sprinkled once and for all. As the writer of Hebrews says, we've, we've had our consciences now sprinkled clean, and now we are free to follow Christ with boldness and assurance, knowing that it's, this is not you know, going to go on our performance review. We are not going to be judged in the end, for salvation, based on how well we could keep God's law. And so now we're free to receive the grace and the peace, but also it's in abundance. Why that abundance? Because abundance overflows. And that abundance should overflow. We should be so full of grace. We are so full of grace. See, that's the great thing is we don't have to try to be full of grace. We are full of grace. We are vessels of God's grace. It has been poured into us, and we just need to know that. And if we really, truly know that, if we really, truly know how much Christ loves us, and we trust that in faith that is more precious than gold, then that grace will overflow. There will be such abundance that it spills over into one another's lives, into the community. If you turn real quick to uh, chapter 4, verse 10, there's this great verse, and this is a practical theological verse, but, but, but these two ideas are joined. Each one of you, or each one, should use whatever gift, that word gift, same root. As grace, Should use whatever grace he has received to what? To serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. That's why we stand firm in the grace. Because it's that grace, those gifts that God has poured out for us in Christ. And we don't just hoard it. We don't just sit on it. We don't keep it to ourselves. We don't try to put a bottle, you know, bottle top on it. We let it flow freely. And why can we do this? Because we have peace. We have peace with God. Think about it. If you have peace, peace that passes understanding, If you have peace and grace, you have everything. Think about a relationship you might have right now where uh, there's something short of peace. Some of you can maybe think of a person with whom you are not quite at peace. Maybe there's conflict. There's some uh, divisiveness. Some hurt. And imagine if all of a sudden, boom, that relationship that has been fractured, were instantly mended. What a relief you would feel. What a peace you would feel. Now imagine you've had your relationship fractured with your creator. The God of the universe. To whom you owe everything. The one who says, be holy, for I am holy. And that fracture... Though small in your eyes is a yawning chasm and it has been closed in Christ. You are at peace. You are at peace with God. This is all we need. Number five, we were chosen by God so that we could become part of a family that is greater than any nation. Greater than Babylon can't help but think, Peter chose Babylon for a number of reasons, and one might be the fact that Babylon wasn't around anymore. He's not even going to call it Rome. He's going to call it a past tense empire. We need to hear this living in America, which, frankly, we're just a blip on the radar of history. Wow, over 200 years. (laughs) Fast-forwarding to the end, to, to, to these last verses then. Look at the family language uh, in the closing. Help of Silas, I regard as a faithful brother. Mark, my son. And she who's about, there's this family language. Peter, all the way in Rome, calls these scattered, chosen Christians, family, and he says, "Greet one another with a kiss of love." Now, at this point, people get kind of uncomfortable. It's about time for application. (laughs) Some of you, some of you started looking around, looking at people next to you. I'm not that guy, okay? Obviously, there's some cultural uh, stuff going on here. Uh, This is at a a place in time where a a kiss was a common greeting, even between men uh, and all of that. It's still in in a lot of places in the world. Uh, But I do want to say this. Just because we see something in Scripture and go, oh, well, that was cultural, that's not an excuse to ignore it. Often we do that, don't we? This kiss of love, what would be the equivalent today? I think it's something like, you want to greet each other warmly because you're family. Greet each other warmly. Whatever that looks like, okay? In some places, a handshake might cut it, but maybe not. Who knows? I just got a great hug from John Reinhardt. Hadn't seen him in a long time. John Reinhardt is a force of nature. You guys all know that. He... You know, he's a category five hugger. <laughs> he's like Rick Floyd back at back at back at La Mirada. If you've ever been embraced in a Rick Floyd hug with that sweatshirt and just ah, oh, it's great. I'm about a category three hugger. I but it it depends, you know, and, and different. in some people category one. Okay, this a, a handshake is technically a hug localized. Okay. I, OK, we, we, but, but, but whether it's, you know, whether it's handshake, high five, hug, fist bump, we, we need to keep moving towards each other in a family ish sort of way. Yeah, because that's what we are. And, and we need to have grace with one another. Sometimes we do. We have those awkward family moments where you're like, ah, oh, oh, are we going in for oh, gosh, you know, um, you know, just we're family right? And, 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 and we, we love each other, warts and all. That's, that's metaphor. Um, I, I wasn't thinking of any particular, yeah. Um, because when we're the family of Christ, we, we see that grace in abundance, don't we? We're, we're just bathing in it. We're swimming in it. And I just want to thank you guys for having me here because I feel like I've been swimming in it for the, the, the first, you know, just that, that time of worship and, and just the, the laughter and the fellowship and the closeness that, that is just so palpable here. It's, it's wonderful. Keep being encouraged by this. So, I just have two, two questions for application. Two questions. I want to keep it, keep it simple, right? Question one... Am I standing firm in the true grace of God in Jesus Christ? We've been singing about that. I want you to think about your own heart right now. Am I standing firm in the true grace of, of God? What does that mean? Th- think about what you came here with. Think about the cares, the concerns, the anxieties, your to do lists, right? When we walk out, uh, out of church today and, and, and you go on your way, what's going to be that automatic script right? That, that, that hits all of us for the coming week? And, and in that, am I standing firm in the grace that, it, that, it, that is mine? Because we're all exiled in some way, right? We're all strangers and aliens. You might feel exiled in your own family, at work, school, neighborhood, if you have an illness, you might even feel like an exile in your own body. We're not, this isn't our home, okay? But are we standing firm in that grace? And it's okay to say in the moment, no, I'm not, for whatever reason. Maybe you've been wandering into sin. Maybe you've, you've had too much anxiety. Maybe your faith is wavering. Maybe you're just like me, you've just been distracted, right? You've maybe been distracted throughout this sermon. Your mind kind of wanders. Mine does sometimes. Like now, I think about my kids. <laughs> what are they up to, right? We need to be honest. And so the second question Why am I not standing true uh, in the true grace of God? Uh, Might be then number two, am I being encouraged by what God has already done for me in Christ? Maybe what I need to do is have that epiphany, that that aha moment. I have been chosen for all of these things. God has made me an instrument. Not because I'm so great, because he chose me. And however that works out, however that worked out with my free will, I don't know, but I know it's for my encouragement. Now, if you're sitting here and you're not encouraged by what Christ has already done for you, I hope that you'll meditate on this and you'll think about this and that you'll, you'll ask God to encourage your heart. I have to confess, as a Christian, I can look at this and go, yeah, I don't always feel encouraged. And you might even be sitting there now going, "Yeah, I know it is, I know the theology. What you're saying is true, but I'm not encouraged. I'm not standing firm, and I don't know what to do about it." And we can't make that another try harder sermon. Because you can't try harder to be encouraged. It's like me when I in my worst moments, when I'm yelling at my kids, "Be patient!" <laughs> Never once has my child turned to me and said, Father, thank you for your words of wisdom. I was not being patient, but since you then told me to be patient, I find myself being overwhelmed by a spirit of patience. You are kind and good, right? We can't command this. So what do we do? We have to go where we always do, and that's the cross of Christ. We have to go back to that sprinkling. And we have to, as the, the, the song that my kids uh, used to listen to, tell it to Jesus. He already knows. Tell it to Jesus before it grows. You know, Don't wait. Don't wait. Be honest. Say, God, my heart's hard right now, and you know that but he's greater than our hearts. So, I hope we can all be encouraged to stand firm in the grace of God through this this series. And uh, let's just pray together that that, that God would do that for us. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name for what you have done already in Christ. Thank you for the encouragement that this brings to us. And Father, I pray for anybody in this room, myself included, who might be dense or or, or just numbed, perhaps, for whatever reason to this amazing grace we stand in, Lord, I pray that we would all cry out to you, that you would meet us in our weaknesses and that you would cause us to stand firm. Lord, you do hold us fast, and that is the only reason we can stand firm. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.